Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. I'm about to say something that I think we've all heard before, and I'm sure we will all hear again. We are what we read. It's kind of a cliche, right? I mean, I think we all know it. We all admit to it. We all acknowledge it. But how often do we really think about it? How often do we look back at the stories that we read as kids, for example, and trace the ways in which the learnings we picked up from there formed who we were at those crucial moments in time? How often is that happening now, whether you're still a child in reality or a child at heart or fully a grown-up? I don't judge. There's the pleasure of reading and the learning we get from reading, but there is this deeper interrogation of reading, which I guess is why I host book podcasts, you know? I want to talk to authors and ask them questions about why they made the choices that they did because those choices impact me on like a very visceral level. And the two books that we're going to look at today really think about how we are formed by the books and the people around us. Sunyi Dean is an autistic SFF writer and a mother of two. Originally born in the States and raised in Hong Kong, she now lives in Yorkshire, England. When not running, reading, falling over in yoga, or rolling D20s, she sometimes escapes the city to wild swim in lonely dales, and she is the author of the fantastic debut novel, The Book Eaters. The book starts off with a fantastic premise, this idea that the written word can feed cravings just like food might that there are secret societies of people out there in the world who live on books. I mean, cool, right? But not unsurprisingly, things are more complicated than that. The novel follows a mother, Devon Fairweather, as she tries to protect her son. She is a book eater, but her son is something even rarer, a creature who feeds on human minds. She is racing to protect her son, who is a danger to himself and to others, and questioning everything she has known about book eater society. This particular conversation was a first for the show. Sun Yi and I got together to do a live event. It was a digital live event hosted in August by the fine folks at Jericho Writers, a UK-based writers consultancy. We weathered everything from technical difficulties to audience questions to interruptions from our dogs, very little of which made it into this edited version of our conversation. I started off by asking Sun Yi about the book eaters and the imagery of these creatures who are essentially vampires. I think the imagery was always there. Some creatures from mythology, Japanese yokai that eat books. There's a 90s cartoon that had a sorcerer called Macbeth who ate books to gain spell power. But the actual idea to make it into either a story, first a short story and later a book came from Twitter. Uh, someone on Twitter is saying that, you know, vampires are, are done. You can't make them fresh or novel or interesting. And it's kind of got under my skin a little bit. And so I started thinking about it theoretically, what you could do, what directions you could take that story and what it would look like. And the fact that every culture, as far as we have records for, has vampiric creatures and we use one kind of vampire in our stories. So there are lots out there. I really like how when you're reading this book, for me anyway, that hit me later on. There was some point where I was like, oh my God, wait, they're vampires. It really did feel fresh and cool and new. And I liked that for the first time in a long time, I connected with the metaphorical aspect of vampirism. I think everyone watching or listening to this is a reader and we are formed by these books that we consume, the stories that we consume. We, we eat them and then they form us. And that was such a fascinating thing that you layered into this book, these book eater families specifying what books you're supposed to eat at what ages in order to become the person who they want you to be. And I wanted to know more about that and maybe also the books that formed you. 
So I think a lot of my upbringing, you know, this is not like a, a slant on anyone who is conservative or religious, but my upbringing was very conservative or religious. And there was a lot of discussion when I was a kid about what books are appropriate. And if you read outside that, you've got to read with an eye towards, you know, this is secular. So my dad had a lot of philosophy books, but he would always say, this is the book by Nietzsche, who's, you know, an atheist and he thinks things in a certain way and you have to bear that in mind. So my parents did encourage reading, but there was a bent to everything and there were limits on what they thought were appropriate and I think a lot of people grow up with that because there is a line between letting your children read completely inappropriate things and coming down too strictly on that I very much relate to that my parents only figured out that I was reading inappropriate things after I had long been reading inappropriate things I got in trouble I came home with a note from my sixth grade teacher who was like please do not let your son bring his Stephen King books to school anymore. And my parents were like, what? What are you reading? What's going on in these books? And they were kind of like, oh, shit, because the cat was very much already out of the bag. And I think it's interesting, too, that Devin has a bit of that in this book. She's told that she's only supposed to read fairy tales. And she's like, well, I want to read this other stuff. And I found that that really resonated with me, too. Yeah, I think when I was growing up, there was a lot of, you know, churches have their own libraries and they mostly have kind of Christian lit. And you are strongly encouraged to read just that and to watch certain kinds of films. And that's fine to a point, but I got bored with it. I think there were a lot more interesting books out there. Maybe better to let kids read them and have conversations, I guess, if you're concerned. Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, wouldn't it just be so much of a better world if we had conversations with kids instead of restricting things from them? <laughs> but that's a topic for a different day. I wanted to talk to you about time in this book. There's the present tense action and then flashbacks helping us understand how we came to this point. And I am always so impressed by the deft juggling act when I read a book that manages to pull off an overlapping timeline and make me feel equally compelled by both timelines. And I'm curious about how you wrote it. Did you start at a specific spot in the story and then, and then build out in either direction? Did you go chronologically? Did you go completely out of order? How did you do it? Most of my books I've written out of chronological order. Well, I say most of them. The first two that I wrote were out of chronological order, and I would drag and drop chapters to put them in the right story order. For this one, I did have to start from the beginning. So that first chapter is Devon is the first chapter. And then as I kind of got through the draft, I wrote different synopses, one synopsis for her present timeline, one for her past. And kind of what you mentioned, there's always that difficulty with multiple timelines because each timeline, the tension arc has to build individually. But when they're staggered like that, they also have to build together. And you get a lot from the structure. I think I think the structure gives you twists and turns where each, the past is flipping what you know of the present and vice versa. So you think you know it's going on in the present and then the past shows you something different. You think you know it's going on in the past and then the present shows you something different and they don't line up and I think that does build intrigue but the downside to that structure is it does kind of get bogged down I think kind of at the 75% mark the book is a little bit sticky and I was never fully happy with that it's just laboring under its own structure a little bit to get to the point where they meet that's really interesting would you would you say more about that was that something that you were feeling during the editing process was there a moment where you and your editor were like we've figured we have to deal with this in order to get the payoff because the payoff is fantastic I felt it the whole way through when I finished the draft that I was working on I kind of sent it to my agent apologetically and said I feel like this isn't working but I am tired I don't know what else to do with it and she worked on it a bit but you know she's not an editor she does edit but you know her main job is being an agent so we sent it out she thought it was ready and you know Tor picked it up so I guess she was right but we did three heavy developmental rounds and I think about a third of the book got rewritten across 10 months and it was structure and world building stuff I don't know if we ever fully fixed it but we fixed it to the point where we felt like it was doing its job to get people to the end if you read two-thirds through there's no refund so <laughs> but more seriously I think it kind of didn't have to be perfect in the end it just got to the point where it told the story as best it could if there's a way to get it smoother than that I don't know I think there are things I could have done to make the plot flow smoother but then I would have lost something I could have picked up the pacing by cutting some of the character conversations or character development but to me that was an exchange I was happy to do and I think all books you pick that line sometimes I think you just have to make those decisions for what you want from the book versus how it's going to work for other people it's a hard line to draw speaking of characters we should talk about Devon and her place in the great lineage of badass moms I know that you are a mom you mentioned before we got on the air you were like I didn't know anybody other than maybe some moms would want to read this book can you talk about the driving engine of writing motherhood and what it was about this story and Devin's relationship with her families and her kid that 
compelled you? I think sci-fi and fantasy tends to be more complicated, more complex than realist fiction. I don't say that in a disparaging way because I do read lit fic as well, but you've got so many things going on. You've got all the speculative elements, the plots, the world building, and something that tends to suffer in sci-fi is the family of protagonists. I think it's a really easy way to simplify the story, to remove the family. And I remember the first book that I wrote, it was set in a society where people didn't really have parents. So, you know, it just cut all that complication out. When it came to writing the book, eaters I wanted to go the other way and actually embrace the complexity of family and it really takes over I do see why people leave it out actually because you don't want to read about Randall Thor's dad and it's always a bit weird <laughs> chapters where he is but I thought it'd be interesting to explore that dynamic I think parenting is really complicated I think it's one of the most complicated relationships in our lives everybody argues with their parents at some point <laughs> there's a lot of conflict and a lot of strife and a lot of opinions on children and being one and raising them and the thing that I always found interesting about vampires is they are built in with ethical dilemma. They have to do terrible things to survive. This is kind of why Twilight didn't click for me because it was missing that conflict. No shade to the book, but that's what I look for from monster characters is that ethical conflict. And Devon has that in spades. Devon's son is a different kind of eater. He consumes minds. He absorbs everything that he consumes, meaning if he eats one's mind, he absorbs their personality, their traits. So he can't eat bad people. He can't be a Dexter-style vigilante or he'll become a bad person himself. So Devon goes out and has to hunt and kill good people for her son. And that's where she is in chapter one. I think there's an echo there of what we do anyway. I think most people, when you have children, you don't make decisions that are right or wrong. You make decisions for them. I don't know if I'm explaining this well. It's always a sticky issue. There's an element I was thinking about when we adopted a cat years ago off this internet website that's really dodgy and she just arrived in a cardboard box and she was actually pregnant, this cat, and the vet advised us to terminate her cat pregnancy, which sounds horrible. But he basically said, if you don't, these kittens existing means that people will adopt these kittens instead of cats cats are in shelters and whatever you do, cats are dying. It made me think when I had my own kids, it's like, you know, if I'd adopted, I might have saved a child's life, but I've chosen to have my kids and to pour that money and time into them. And it might be even something as simple as like I pour resources into my kids means someone else has had a worse life or someone else has even died. And then in a broader sense, I think if someone ever comes after your family, be it your children or your loved ones, you don't stop and debate, is this right or wrong? You act in the moment to defend them. Devon does that as well. She worries about the ethics after. Yeah. I mean, I too grapple with those questions. And I think that the book does such a good job of making the reader think about it along with Devon, sort of moment by moment. There's a recurring phrase sort of motif in the book that comes up a lot when Devon is finding food, which is, a, as I say it, is a very uncomfortable thing because I suppose I might be food in this instance. But she's constantly asking, are you a good person? And the ways in which people do or don't respond to that and by people, I also include the book eaters. You know, there are people who she doesn't trust at the beginning, who she comes to trust at the end. There are people who she does trust, who she shouldn't. And I think it feels like such an easy question to ask and such a hard question to answer. Can a person be good? Did you find, as you were working on this book, that your conception of goodness changed or shifted? No, I think the best that people hope for is to be good to each other. Very few people are good all the time. And it's like driving. I think the, the example I would use, we all agree that most people are bad drivers, but we all think that we're one of the good ones. <laughs> and humanity is the same. We all think the world is full of terrible people, but we're not terrible. And somewhere along the line, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance happening. We've all been terrible to somebody, usually. I know the extent that matters. And there's people who are like massive serial killers and Nazis and so on, and they're worlds apart from ordinary people, but I don't think most people are as good as they believe they are. I do include myself in that. <laughs> I think we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves that we can live with. And I think we construct this kind of myth about ourselves where we're important and interesting and unique and our lives matter. And I sound very cynical now, <laughs> but I think we have to do that to kind of survive in the universe that we're in because it's a lot otherwise. Yeah. There's one conversation that Devin has with a victim where the guy is basically like, I want to be good, I tried to be good, and life got in the way. And something about that, I think knowing that his fate was sealed, it hit me in a surprisingly emotional place. What better answer could you give, you know, whether or not it's true, that idea of, I try, I have tried. 
I think for me, his excuse is the same excuse Devin uses. Well, I had no choice in life, so that's how I am. And I think, I don't know how many people picked up on it. I've read a couple of reviews where someone said, I don't know how much of what's presented about Devin is her self-delusion that she tells to herself to be necessary and how much of it is like the author saying this is the way. And so at least someone on the, out there, I think, really noticed it that, yeah, that Devin is very unreliable as a narrator. She definitely justifies everything to herself. My assessment of her is that she's not a good person and that she probably fails in most of her goals in a way like kind of ethically and stuff but that's really interesting it makes me think about a conversation that I have had with several other authors on this season of the show but with friends with other readers about and why there is there continues to be this thing where readers are like, oh, I didn't like that character. And it makes me wonder, why does it matter to readers that characters are likable? You know, why do we think that that's necessary? I mean, I definitely felt like I couldn't trust Devin, if only because she felt borderline feral at times in a way of like, yeah, no, I'm not going to mess with you. In fact, I'm going to cross to the other side of the street in the hopes that you don't feed me to your child. But I never had the question of whether or not she was likable, you know? Oh, that's interesting. I don't worry about likability. I think there has to be a bit of relatability. Her struggles for poverty and stuff kind of make sense to people. The things that she worries about, like, yeah, she's murdering people, but also her son is eczema and she needs lotion and things like that. But likability, I never worried about because I love all the really horrible characters, like in Fight Club and stuff like that. <laughs> if they're interesting and they're competent, then I can have a kind of respect for them. And I hoped that people would have respect for Devin's competence because she's pretty competent. But I didn't worry too much about them liking her because, you know, she was at a party. I wouldn't sit next to her and talk to her, I think. Like you say, you'd kind of avoid her because she's a lot of bloodshed on her hands. <laughs> but I would read about her from a distance. When <laughs> Jenny Devon sets out, she does everything in this book to save her son. She does lots of terrible things. But to me, she fails to save him in the ways that matter. So for me, everything was almost not for nothing, but was it worth the cost? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point. And it feeds into the thing you were saying about Devin as unreliable and that we can't really trust everything that she's saying to us, the reader. It's so easy to, though. It's so easy by the end of a book, even with, you know, an antihero or something to sort of be like, oh, I've spent 100,000 words with you. I feel it's really tricky when you start to interrogate that connection, you know? Yeah, have you ever read Where the Curl Dads Sing? What's another one? Last House on Needless Street. I did a lot of reading for book eaters and I read a lot of these thrillers and I felt like they use this technique a lot where they introduce you to these characters who are suspect at the start of the book and both of them have been accused of terrible crimes. And then the books work really hard to make you like these characters and understand them and feel like you empathize with them while also working really hard in like timelines and flashbacks and stuff to make them look really guilty. And in one of these books, the character is guilty and one of them the character's not and I won't say which is which for people who haven't read these books or want to see the films <laughs> but it doesn't matter because if the book forces the reader into this position where you make a choice and you choose the character you choose to side of them I think that's really powerful and part of why these books are a big success for people because by the time it comes to the crunch you've decided to side with these characters whether they're guilty or not and you've thrown in your lot with them and I was hoping aiming for some of the same things with Devon that it almost doesn't matter matter whether she is a monster or not, whether she succeeded or not, you've thrown your lot in with her. And if you can make the reader make that choice, I think that's a really powerful moment. Earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the church. The church is a big part of so many vampire narratives, from Dracula all the way through to the Anne Rice books, which I think about a lot when I think about vampires. My family is from New Orleans. Those books are basically vampires going to church, kind of. But there's a moment about halfway through the book where Devin and Kai are confronted with this idea that they can either take this drug that will save Kai or they can take something called communion. There's such a loaded word there. And the iconography of the whole thing, there's so much religious imagery. And I was curious about the way that you have tied your vampires and sort of the lowercase c church together. Um, so, I mean, I think Devin touches on this a little bit, that they, they just kind of find human religion baffling, that Devin looks at it as like, well, we're not really mentioned in religions, or if we are a monster, so that religion, whether it's true or not, belongs to another species. Killick is unhinged, he's just had too many things going on in his head, and he's just merged a bunch of things together. I guess he's kind of an extreme version of what the book eaters already are. He's created his own self-myth about himself to make himself interesting and heroic, and 
I think there is power in language. I think, I don't know if you ever get to study it. We studied a little bit at uni. People use language to reinforce social groups and that can be good and bad. So churches, you know, we do say it, small things would be like, you never say, oh, I'm going to think about it. You'd say, I'm going to pray about it. And the spirit moved me to say this to you. There's a whole language around just regular conversation. Uh, and it's very powerful. It creates this very reinforcing kind of structure. And we have it in leftist circles as well. The way we talk about things, we have specific terms for stuff. And that's that's what Killick is doing. He's using language in that way to kind of reinforce people around him and keep them to himself. Yeah. I mean, that sort of thing always fascinates me, the power inherent in language and specifically the way that it's very easy to not think about these things until you're confronted with this sensation of, oh, that's an interesting language choice. Or this thing has become a colloquialism, the way that something like saying Jesus Christ went from taking the Lord's name in vain to something that doesn't matter to most people. It does still matter to some people. And I think that's interesting too, this balance. You almost can't overthink this, the ways in which language continues to shift and evolve and inhabit different spaces for different people. Well, your language changes when you lose faith. You, you drop all these terms and it's it is a shift. Like, you know, I noticed it anyway. You lose all of these terms. You lose all of these words. The way that you think about things also changes and that follows suit. Now, there's something there that uh, and someone more academic than me could parse into how we construct it. I guess a short example that I remember from universities is a professor explaining that the language lawyers use is very obscure and inaccessible. And he basically said, at least in Britain, the courts do that on purpose. They mm. use legalese to make this kind of exclusive you know, it's designed to be impenetrable to people who aren't lawyers. And it's, <laughs> I mean, they're doing it for their jobs and they're trying to be precise, but often, anyway, that's a whole other rabbit hole, so. Olive Blake is the pseudonym of Alexine Farrell Falmouth, a lover and writer of stories. She's penned several indie SFF projects, including the webtoon Clara and the Devil with illustrator Little Kimura, and the book talk viral Atlas series, the first book of which, The Atlas Six, was recently republished by Tor. And the second book, The Atlas Paradox, comes out in October. Her young adult rom-com, My Mechanical Romance, came out earlier this year. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, new baby, and rescue Pitbull. The Atlas Six is one of those books that feels almost inescapable. I, as I mentioned on an earlier episode of the show, I'm not on TikTok. It scares me. But it's impossible to escape virality in this day and age. And I heard about the Atlas Six long before it was picked up by Tor. It is a viral smash hit. And it deserves every single piece of hype that has come its way. I got to talk to Olivey just as I was finishing reading a galley of The Atlas Paradox. Not that we talk about it that much in this episode. Don't worry about spoilers. But I had this question that had been running around in my mind ever since I saw the deal announcement that she was coming to tour. And that question was just, how's it going? It's hard because I'm a pantser. I call myself a reformed pantser that I used to fly by the seat of my pants. And now I like write a very skeletal outline. So when I started writing The Atlas Six, I knew that I wanted it to be a trilogy. I had a vague sense that I wanted book one to feel very, very claustrophobic, that we were just in this house and that would allow me to play with morality because we're inside the minds of these six people and we get no real impact from the outside world and then slowly widen the scope and it would become a little bit more about you know fun things like the ethics of climate change just kidding not kidding but you know within metaphors so i wrote book one had no idea where it was going totally up in the air i knew i wanted it to feel like both a six-person love story and a very strange family drama at the same time and that i was just going to follow that line and so then i wrote book two and at the time that i wrote book two things were already going crazy this book had already been picked up by tour it had been optioned by amazon i was very much feeling like a hack in general just like oh my god i have no idea what i'm doing but i guess i'm just going to keep doing it it, largely because I don't have time to ask myself what I'm doing. <laughs> Wrote book two, literally no idea what was going to happen in book two when I sat down. And then four weeks later, there was the first draft and things moved on this breakneck production schedule. And now I'm sitting here with more of an idea. You know, obviously you finish two out of three books, so you kind of have to have an idea where things are going. And it's been the worst. 
you know, when you really have a strong idea of like what you want your prom dress to look like or what you want your haircut to look like, you just know how you want it to look. And then it doesn't. That's so much harder than having no idea what you want. And then like almost anything can please you. Like, oh my God, I have hair. It's pleasing. <laughs> That's how I felt about book two versus book three. I am like, I get like awoken in the middle of the night thinking, oh God, that's not going to work. That's not going to fit together. Now, what am I going to do? And yeah, it's been very stressful. Most of the time, I just don't ask myself those questions. Like, it's funny that, <laughs> it's funny that you open with like, how are you doing? Because I have absolutely no idea. I do not take the pulse of what's happening to me or it would be too alarming and I'd have to just sit here and meditate for like an hour, <laughs> take a nap or something like <laughs> just after asking myself that question. It's too big. It's too, I don't understand. Like if I put on my cultural sociology hat, I can look at the pandemic and say, okay, all these book communities that took off, it was our way of being collectively together, even though we were all apart. And so it makes sense to me that book talk would be this huge thing and like book Twitter and bookstagram and booktube there was these thriving communities that are so amazing and it also makes sense that okay they pick a book that has an escapist aspect to it the dark academia thing like I could see why that took off I just I don't understand how it is my book like that's where my brain fails me <laughs> yeah I bet I love hearing you talk about the evolution of writing each book and obviously lots has changed for you in a circumstantial way but then also the writing of the books the actual writing it's a neat way to think about a trilogy and I'm curious from a craft perspective when the books got picked up by Tor and you went from having this wildly successful self-published book to a wildly successful Big Five published book, you were already in the middle of book two. How did that change things? How did that change the Atlas Six? How did it change the Atlas Paradox? Did it change things? So people always talk about how the biggest change going from self-publishing to traditional publishing, in addition to handing over the production and the marketing and all the stuff that I didn't really ever want to do, you get the loss of creative control. But at least my experience was not that a group of people were like, let's completely change what you wrote. It was actually 100% exciting for me because I got to come in with a lot more power than a normal debut author. Like a lot more. I got to say things like, no, I want to keep the illustrations in the book. I want the same illustrator. When I was doing things for self-publishing, I wasn't trying to make a living self-publishing. I was just trying to make my work as accessible as possible. I wanted to keep the actual cost of the paperback down. So there was a limit on how many actual words I could write because every additional page is more money. I wanted to make sure my books were under $10. And so I just, there was a lot of stuff where I was like, oh shoot, I would want to put this in, but I don't really have room, whatever, maybe next time. So this was like an amazing opportunity to have a second chance at where do we need to put in these additional details, flesh the world out a little bit more, add one or two character descriptions. Speaking of fleshing out the world and the characters, I love that dialogue and conversation continue to be a driving focus of your books in a way that feels honestly like a magic trick. There is this sense of, damn, how did she do that? As I was prepping for this, I was flipping back through my notes, and there's a moment more or less halfway through the Atlas Six where Tristan is having a late night, thinking hard about the nature of reality, as one does. And I so deeply related to all of that, but there's a moment where he sort of has this realization that reality is relationships. And the moment I read it, I was like, ooh, yeah, I love this. Because it opened up the book for me in this fascinating way. And it seems like you are doing this thing where the relationships are the point. Let's get people in a room and see what happens when they bounce off of one another. And the most fascinating way to do that is often by dialogue. And I want to know how you landed there as a writer. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for getting it. I think it's everybody's nature to be a little self-deprecating. So sometimes I fixate on people who tell me there's a problem with the pacing or whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, sure, it's a problem if you don't like it. But to me, this is what I like. This is what I think is interesting. I'm most interested in the human element. I'm always more interested in what people are thinking or what lies they're telling themselves. I have to get really cerebral again, but I wanted to write this 
particular story because I was wrestling with the ethics of having a child. I wrote this in the winter of 2019 and I was really battling with myself about whether or not I really believed that birth is a curse and existence is a prison. <laughs> <laughs> Quoting the good place there. It just felt like not that politics are ever that good and they're certainly not good right now, but they were particularly challenging in that time in that I couldn't really see how things could end well. And I didn't see how I could bring a baby into the world who would have, I just couldn't promise anything. I couldn't promise some glorious bright future. So I was like, well, what, what is, what can I promise? What can, what can we say here? What can we look at about the world? And it just always came back to in the moment, it feels like the world is ending. It always feels like the world is ending. And the only way to really get through that, it's like the world isn't going to end. The world is bigger than we are. Maybe our world will end, but what does that really mean? And the bigger, the broader things get, these big questions about meaning and purpose and ethics, they all really come down to something very, very small, which is your relationship with other people. And the important thing in saving the world is not a about the world and the people that you'll never meet and never know and never know the experiences of. It is always about the people that are closest to your life. Nobody thinks they are the villain. Everybody is their own unreliable narrator. And that's a major theme of the series overall and also of book two. And it was really interesting for me to look at it from even a physics lens of just like, let's talk about relativity. Let's talk about how you cannot understand something objectively. You can only understand your relationship to it. Yeah. I mean, going back to Tristan in his room contemplating the universe, I so many times and I imagine lots of the people who are listening to this have done that thing where it's 11 o'clock and you're like, oh, what if I look up string theory on Wikipedia and several hours later your head kind of hurts and you're somewhere completely different. You don't know how you got there and you don't really understand any of it, but also you understand some of it. I loved that in this book, there was teaching in this book. You could go into this book not knowing anything about quantum theory and come out of it thinking, oh, I understand a little bit of this in a way that, you know, you might not have necessarily expected. And I want to know about the research and also about not letting the research or the passion for the science side of stuff overwhelm the readability of the book. When I wrote this, dark academia was not really a thing. Like, it was a thing, obviously. It's been a thing since The Secret History by Donna Tartt. But it wasn't a term that people tossed around in the same way. Like, it was boarding school books. Yeah. And those weren't considered dark academia. You just can't talk about dark academia without also talking about the secret history. The way that you do ruminate on these subjects and part of what makes the book so compelling and what makes you get a little bit lost in the psychological thriller of it all is being in this incredibly I use the word claustrophobic for the Atlas Six, and I'll use it again here. <laughs> Incredibly claustrophobic environment. The only thing that's important to you becomes academia itself. It has an embedded hierarchy. It has embedded stakes. Someone always wins and someone always fails. And I didn't want to lose the sense of being in the classroom and feeling like my mind is literally expanding right now. And I'm around all these people who are making me smarter and the kind of high that you get from learning in that way. And especially the way that it feels really profound while you're in it. Like I'm doing something really important. Let me in this room, what I'm learning, the world is changing because of this thought that I've had and academia itself rewards you for that feeling and I wanted that sense but I also thought we've seen this kind of idea done a lot when it has to do with the arts and I wanted to see it done with science and physics is a really easy place to start because physics has a very significant crossover with classics so when I wanted to start, I started with the Library of Alexandria because it felt like an obvious place to start. Like, okay, let's start with classics, which are people just wondering about the universe, which leads naturally to mythology, to religion, to literature, but also to physics. I wrote Alone With You in the Ether prior to the Atlas Six, but the first version of it had a very impractical version of time travel. There's a character in Alone With You in the Ether who is a theoretical mathematician who is obsessed with time travel. He's trying to solve time travel as a way of distracting himself from his clinical depression. <laughs> who among us? Hard saying. 
And I just invented a theory. And the more that I started researching my own invented theory, the more interested I got in what actual physicists have to say about time, which led very naturally to quantum theory. My husband is a physics teacher. So we actually had a lot of books that I ended up reading when I was like, wait, so I'm thinking about doing this. And he dropped like with a thud, a pile of books on my desk. And there were like Feynman lectures and there was Einstein, but there was also the Tao of Physics, which is a really, really interesting book. And then from there, I started reading about the origins of the universe, cosmic inflation. The framework for book two is in psychology. I was reading Man and His Symbols, and I was trying to draw on this idea of this like atavistic blueprint for humanity that we are connected, not by dream realms, but by something in our programming that causes us to wonder in the same place, basically. So there was a lot of stuff like that. It's just a lot of reading, basically. And for the third book, I'm doing a lot of philosophy. So there's there's your brief spoiler for book three. Nice. Oh, I can't wait. This actually, it makes me want to ask you about something that I have written down in my notes as magical hierarchy slash taxonomy. I mean, hearing you talk about the research that you were doing, I can see some of these things, but it all feels, I guess everything in this book feels like a new twist on something that maybe I have seen before, but not in this way. You know, the Library of Alexandria, the physicalists versus the mentalists. Tell me everything. The first thing that popped into my head was just, I'm a fan. I love books. And I'm a fan fiction author originally. Not that this particular book was ever fan fiction. I always have to clarify that just for the record. But I think I just come from a place of mentally engaging with the things that I read and turning them over and and really trying to not improve upon them, but expand them a little bit and see like, well, what if we did it a little bit differently? Especially because a lot of the books that I read have not necessarily reflected me. You know, fantasy is still predominantly a white, straight, male genre. Not that you could tell as much anymore, which is great. But I think that if you consider the ideas put into your head by the books that you read, just naturally, it's going to be like, well, why didn't anyone think of this? And it's like, well, of course they didn't. They're not looking at it from my lens. They're not looking at it from my viewpoint. So to me, this is just building on a lot of stuff that has already existed. And it's not like I sat down and was like, I'm going to diversify the genre. I'm going to revolutionize fantasy. I don't consider myself trying to write for representation. You know, naturally, I get a lot of people commenting on how queerness is represented in the book. And I'm certainly not trying to represent anything. I think if anything, I come from an era that was very like, we don't like labels. I recognize that we're in an era where people like to find words for what they are. And I think that's great. But it's the opposite of how I feel. It's more like stop trying to put words on who I am, especially because, you know, as a woman of color, sometimes that label woman of color, even being on lists about being whatever, it feels like something that's put on me, you know, like it's what people are looking at, as opposed to what I'm seeing. And so yeah, which is a long winded way of saying I'm not trying to represent anything. However, I think that the way it's written comes from a place of observing things that maybe other people have not observed before and that people are starting to do, which is great. I think that's what I really love about dark academia right now is people are criticizing academia as an institution, which I think is great and fascinating and subtle. That's what's so interesting about it is we're not coming out and and pointing at here's everything that's wrong. It's more like you can peel back a little and see that institutional rot that also happens to be like a really cool library and (laughs) provide that sense of escapism. And the way that these characters recognize the push and pull between that feeling of, ooh, I think I really want to do this. And man, higher education is a racket in a number of different ways. (laughs) And then also there's something creepy about this. We have to go away for a year balancing all of these things. And then just the pull of it. I remember applying to colleges and I certainly didn't have the kind of foresight that it feels like these characters did. But I do remember feeling that pull, that appeal, that draw to it. And that was just normal academia. Yeah, there's a real pretentiousness that is so appealing and it's also kind of why I had to set it in London or why I said it in England it's not out of adoration or admiration it's it's more like it just obviously it has to take place here oh I totally know what 
you mean. I feel exactly that way about London. I am drawn there with my heart and soul in a way that doesn't totally make sense based on everything else that I believe in the world. But, oh, I would love to live in that city again. That's what's so fitting about setting it there, this idea that you want to be there even though you know there's blood in the walls. And that complexity is something that is just, it's just so, it's part of it. Yeah. You know, that makes me think about something that I have been considering about this book since I read it, and that is fate. And I don't quite know why it jumped out to me almost as soon as I started reading, but it has also been a thing that has stuck with me through book two. And I guess one way to get into this is for me to ask you if you believe in fate. That's such a question. (laughs) (laughs) I had someone, there was a blogger back when the Outlet 6 was still self-published and it was kind of making moves, but it certainly wasn't anything that it turned out to be. And and she asked me, it's really interesting the way you've approached fate. Are you going to tell us what fate is? I have still been thinking about that question. And I was like, I don't think that anything I say is necessarily going to change your mind. I think that whatever you take from these books is going to probably confirm whatever you believed about fate to begin with. But I wanted to have that conversation. And it made sense to do it from the perspectives of six very, very different people who come down in extremely different ways on what fate means. And I think what was more important to me was not, is fate real? But how does our belief in fate change the way that we act? And especially how does that drive our morality? Especially having, you know, all these characters have a very different take on what it means to exist in the world. And they change also what they think about it. And it drives them in what I think are interesting and surprising ways. Because my view on the universe is that I believe in everything and also kind of nothing. You know, because once you believe in everything, that's essentially as good as nothing. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a God, if there were many gods, if there was no God, and this was all just a computer simulation. All of that makes sense to me. The only thing that makes sense to me in this world is that I am not made to understand it. So I kind of approach everything from the uh, incepting conclusion that everything could be true. And if you look at the world as the only thing that really matters is your relationship to other people and how you treat people, then the only thing about fate that matters is how it makes you act. How often did these characters surprise you while you were writing? You mentioned that you're a pantser or a reformed pantser. So I have to imagine that the answer is at least sometimes. But how often did they surprise you as you were going through these books? Very, very often. The scene I always talk about from book one is the Callum and Parisa scene. I have a note about how much I loved that scene. Here's what I knew going into that scene. I knew that Callum and Parisa were presenting as very similar characters. They have very similar ideas about human nature. They have similar abilities. And I thought the audience might not be able to tell the difference between them. The people they live in the house with probably can't. And if they can't, the audience can't. So let's have them do a little showdown. So I remember writing, Callum and Paris question mark and then I sat down and that whole scene came out in one go and it has seen very few edits I didn't edit it Tor didn't really edit it I say Tor but I mean my editor of course and it, I remember that when I finished I sat back and I was like okay well I just made a lot of spur of the moment decisions about who these people are do I regret any of that I guess not and the same thing happened in book two very early on with Reyna because Reyna is a character we didn't see much of in book one which was on purpose I think that you have to spend a lot of time in Reyna's company before she opens up at all. Like less than a year with Reyna, you're not going to know anything about her. But you've been living with her for a year and you could tell that things are going to start to slip through the very tightly sealed cracks. And so the first like big revelation that we get from Reyna is it's a weakness. We see Raina's weakness for the first time. Raina's got a little bit of insecurity, a little bit of inability to communicate how she's feeling. She's avoiding confrontation. And it's something that as I was writing it, I was like, this is maybe going to annoy some people. <laughs> like, I don't know that the audience is going to love this, but at the same time, it feels like this is what would happen. This is where it's got to go. And so definitely that was a surprise. And also I sent the draft off to my editor. And then I also sent a separate document that was like, for after you read this. And my first question was, did I ruin Reina? <laughs> because it's hard. Like, do you ruin someone by making them more real? Yes. Duh. But it was so important to see that aspect of her. And and Reyna to me is, well, I was Reyna is the most interesting character to me in book two. And then there is another character that I think is the funnest to watch. I'll leave that for the audience. <laughs> 
how much are you thinking about the audience as you write? Both, you know, when you got started and now. Has it changed? Is it still the same? I would say that I'm always considering the audience. They're always like an invisible person sitting next to me. And not in terms of, I consider the audience in the sense that when you're writing fan fiction, the most important thing about fan fiction is pleasing the audience. If you're the kind of fan fiction author who's writing for yourself, you're the audience, that's fine. The point is that you're writing to make someone satisfied. So my like writing education, because I've never had a formal writing education, has been in the school of crowd pleasing. And not in the sense that I am giving the audience what they want. Like I'm not going to give Twitter what they want, no matter how many times they DM me. <laughs> What I mean is that I am making sure that you're getting a satisfactory return on what you came into. That like, okay, I brought you into this world. You bought into it. I've given you these characters and I'm going to be true to who those characters are. And I'm going to follow their story in a way that makes sense. And I'm not going for cheap thrills. You know, this isn't about shocking twists, even if hopefully sometimes that happens. Like a little shock is good, but I'm not trying to pull the rug out from under you. I want you to feel like you understand where we are, why characters are making these decisions, what is going to happen next. So that's my mood here. I am not trying to trick you as the audience. I am trying to give you a satisfying conclusion. I want you to, when you finish the trilogy, walk away like you took something from it that you feel something. The way that I'm always keeping an eye on the audience is in keeping an eye on the fact that they are feeling something. I always talk about how fan fiction authors are always keeping an eye on what the reader's heart is doing. You know, is it racing? Is it fluttering? Like what's happening inside their chest at the moment? And that's how I write. That's what I'm trying to do. Whatever your heart is telling you, even if your heart, you know, really hates someone. <laughs> It won't surprise you to know that many of my friends are people with whom I talk about books. The books we're reading, the books we have read, I'm in a book club. It felt right for an episode where we're talking about being formed by the books we read and the people who we are around, particularly when you share those books with those people, to go to the person who is the most formative reader in my life. She happens to be a platinum-selling recording artist. Her music has been heard on The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Riverdale, Grey's Anatomy, Lucifer, among many, many other shows. If that wasn't nerd cred enough, she wrote a song for League of Legends. She's my favorite person in the world. She's my little sister, Valerie Broussard. I talked with her at her studio in Los Angeles about what it means to be a reader, what reading means to her, and specifically how genre has shaped the course of her entire life. I mean, as you know, I am dyslexic. And so reading for me was not promised. And so then when it began as something that was a part of my life, at the time that we were growing up, the Harry Potter books were very zeitgeisty. And so that was one of the first things that I was able to engage with in terms of a book, even though I was unable to read at the time. And you actually recorded the first two for me with like little voices and everything, which was great. And that was massive in me beginning to read and read along and all of that stuff. And the third one was the first book that I read on my own in big print, and I still have the big print one. And then fast forward to fifth or sixth grade when I did the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy in small print, and that was my first small print triumph. And these books that came very much from you and from mom are fantasy. And I think that my love of sci-fi and fantasy has absolutely shaped who I am. This need for adventure, wanting to be Bilbo Baggins, wanting to strike out on the road and not knowing, you know, where the wind will take you, kind of main character thing that you always want to have after reading books like that. And Discworld was a massive part of my reading as a young person, mostly again because of you and because of this love of fantasy and sci-fi. But Discworld has this amazing ability to combine music and magic. They're very much intertwined. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, that really strikes me as something that was definitely ingrained from childhood and now is such a huge part of my life as 
as a music professional. My last EP is very sci-fi driven and all the visuals were very sci-fi driven. I have a love of having my music put in television shows and the vast majority of these shows that I've been lucky enough to be a part of are genre shows, most notably Lucifer, which of course comes from the fantastic Sandman comics and we love Neil Gaiman in this family. And I think, you know, there are songwriters that you and I grew up with that mom and dad encouraged us to listen to who have that sort of spooky genre side. I'm thinking about Stevie Nicks and Sting. I was just listening to Moon Over Bourbon Street, the one about Sting singing as though he's a vampire in New Orleans. That's a great song. Like, why does nobody write songs about being a vampire in New Orleans anymore? Maybe I should do that. I don't know. So yeah, my music definitely, a lot of the themes and stuff come from, especially the darker stuff, comes from a love of this type of literature, for sure, of genre. And if I may continue to riff on that whole genre thing and the idea of literacy and reading and everything else, as you know, literacy is very important to me. And I feel that we are failing a lot of kids these days in the current education system. I mean, we know just by looking at the numbers that literacy in the United States is not where it should be. And, you know, I, who am I? I'm just some random person. I'm not a doctor. But my prescription for this, because a lot of kids that are being failed in terms of literacy do not have dyslexia or anything like that, the education system just isn't serving them. I think that we need to encourage kids to read things that they love. And I think that genre is underserved in education and literacy education. You know, you're you're giving kids the stuffy classics and stuff. And the stuffy classics are great. But I think that maybe people would be more drawn to the written word if they were allowed to read things that they thought were fun during their upbringing. I suppose part of the reason that I keep coming back to this idea that we are what we read is because what we read matters. The stories that we share with one another, not just what we internalize, but how we take those internalizations and turn them back out to the world. It matters if we tell a kid that they are dangerous or bad. It matters if we tell someone that they are going to have to sacrifice something in order to get what they want. And it matters too if we say, hey, let me help you. Hey, let me share this with you. Books are magical. We all know that. I am not telling you anything that's new, and yet it does feel important to say it again and again and again. There are people out there who do not want to be challenged, who do not want to read something that might open their minds. And I suppose, in a way, that's their right. But I do feel sorry for them. Because, boy, what a world out there, huh? What a multiverse. What an infinitely expanding realm of possibility we have on the page. Ooh, boy, I gotta go pick up a book. I'll be back. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with Lit Hub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Lanchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at Lit Hub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.